This program is made possible by the friends and partners of Curator Ministries. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the table. I'm Pastor Maria Reynolds. I'm in the studio today with my producer, Sam, and also a very special guest. I'm here with my father-in-law, Marshall Reynolds. Thank you, Papa, for being here with us. Oh, you're welcome. I know they're, uh, Sam, I don't know if you know my father-in-law very well, um, but there's probably a laundry list of people that would love for some time to sit down and pick your brain, so I'm very honored and thankful that you took your time to let me have that seat with you at the table. Honey, no problem. <laughs> so, last week, um, Sam, in class, we were talking a little bit about the Christmas story. It's the Christmas season, right? And we all know the the quintessential, you know, you know, manger story, right? About the Messiah coming from Bethlehem, and you know, his mother and father, you know, going, um, uh, making, you know, sojourning to that area and couldn't find adequate lodging, couldn't quite find adequate facilities to give birth. We all know, and we're all very familiar with that story. Um, but I like to look at things a little bit different and through different lenses. God just has wired me weird, I guess, Sam. Um, and I like to look at things that most people kind of glaze over and overlook because I think that there's lessons to learn in the margins. There's always, I think, I think when the Bible says God is made strong in our weaknesses, I think that that, that is when we come to the end of ourself that we get the lessons are in the margins of our life when we literally can't work it out for ourselves anymore. That's where we find God and that's where we find growth. And so I like to kind of look in the margins of stories to find God in those spaces. Right. And so when you look at all of the accounts of Christ's birth, um, Matthew was one of my favorites um, because Sam um, I come. I came up. I grew up in the coal fields, and so um, we weren't poor, but we weren't rich, right? Dad worked hard. Mom worked hard. We had everything we needed, and most everything we wanted. Um, and most everyone around us grew up the same way, right? Um, but I would say that at least in the time that I came up, there wasn't a whole lot of um, hope. I would say in the area that I grew up in, um, there was there was kind of this. Um, almost a little bit of an impoverished mentality a little bit um, because of the of of just the nature I mean it was coal fields so you had this ebb and you had this flow in this industry where you'd have the men that would have work for a season and they would be out of work for a season so it wasn't real stable all the time um, and so you just grew up with a different um, sense of looking at things right you, you you would look at things like it it, it won't always be this way not in a good way, always, kind of in a bad way. Like, well, this Christmas you may get the doll you want, but next Christmas dad may be out of work and you won't. Do you know what I mean? Um, but there's a beauty in that, Sam, that when you grow up with that mentality, it won't always be this way, that there's the other side of the coin, that when you are going through hard times, you realize it won't always be this way. There will be a pendulum swing in a different season that will come. Um, I was I was very blessed. I was raised in a in a Christian household um, where I understood that, that was the hope of God, right? That, that God's hand was on you even in the margins of your life. Um, but I'm not so sure that everyone um, really gets gets that vision of God or that understanding of God today. I think that we <laughs> and you know that I say a lot of things that are a little bit heretic and may at some point get me be fired, Sam. But I think sometimes we as a church today don't do a really good job of a fair and adequate representation of what it means to be a Christ follower. I think we're very deep-seated in religious institution and sometimes very deep-seated in religious acts. 
Um, but that's very topical and there's no root to that. Does that make sense? Um, and so I just I love the book of Matthew because I think he, he gets to the root of that. Right. So if you know anything about Matthew, <clears throat> we don't think about the Gospels at all. They're all four Gospels are written in de- very different agendas. So every writer of the Gospel had an agenda that he was trying to push. Right. Something that he wanted to get across and a facet or a a look at, 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 at Christ and at God that he wanted his reader to understand. Right. Because you, you and I, Sam, are. are Marshall, we, we will may experience the exact same thing in life, but because of our age differences and our experiences, we our experience will be very different. Our takeaways from that experience would be very different. And if we would write those those experiences down for a generation to come, it may look very different. We may record the exact same story in a very different way. Does that make sense? Because my lens would look different in what I was trying to get across to the reader than yours or yours. And so when you look at the life of Matthew – Matthew was a Jew. Um, he was a Jewish man that was um, growing up in a very patriarchal society. That's the Near Eastern society was patriarchal. So um, men um, had held all the power. Um, women were really kind of viewed as kind of property. Um, bloodlines meant everything um, in the Near Eastern society. Um, so who you who you came from the family background that you came from would either qualify you or would disqualify you from even temple work um that's why you see all these genealogies that we kind of glaze over in the bible that when i read them i kind of my eyes glaze i'm like what is the point in all these genealogies well it's to prove the lineage to prove the bloodline of a person to prove their credibility uh, because where you came from mattered um who you associated with in Near Eastern culture mattered. So who you literally dined with. You would see all of these banquets and dinners. Who was at your dinner table mattered. Um, that's why when you look at the story that Matthew accounts with that infamous dinner with Jesus in the in the presence of sinners and other tax collectors, and you had the, the religious people in the background questioning Jesus' followers, kind of talking about him behind his back, like, oh, well, why is your master, you know, dining with these people? It would have been incredibly um, offensive for this man, you know, this self-proclaimed man of God, to be eating with, you know, other tax collectors and prostitutes and people who wouldn't have the adequate pedigree. Um, so, for those people to be at even at Matthew's table lets me know that Matthew didn't associate with the right pedigree, which means he must have been an outcast. Because remember, Matthew was a tax collector um and so what had happened what what you get this vision of is that matthew was raised in actually matthew was raised as levi his biblical name was levi he changed his name to matthew when he became a follower of christ so you have levi um who grew up in this culture and at some point looked at the culture around him it was a it was a it was a very religious and a very oppressive um culture and at some point rejected it and said i just cannot identify with this um i am going to actually shift gears and i am going to align myself and and kind of assimilate into this roman culture and becomes a roman centurion which means now he's a tax collector so um you see less of it now sam but tax collectors at least in near eastern culture didn't have a lot of oversight um, so it's kind of like, I'm going to say this, but sometimes you can have um, 
oh, auditors, and you can have people who are going through your books, right? Accountants, less accountants. Maybe auditors would be a better, a better, um, a better example. But they have a lot of leverage, let's say, over what they can and cannot expect of you to kind of get past their audit to get to the other side. Does that make sense? And centurions had a lot of leverage and there was no oversight. So they would have been given an amount by the Roman Empire to say, okay, uh, Mr. Reynolds, we're going to tax his wealth at this percentage. So he's going to owe us X amount of dollars. And they're going to give this to Sam, who was a tax collector. And you're going to be expected to, 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 to collect that debt and then hand it over to the Roman Empire. Well, Sam, you would have had no oversight. So you could have put 10% on that and pocketed 10% for yourself. And that's what many of these centurions did. That's why they were hated by the Jewish community, because they were they were kind of they were oppressors of their own. And he would have been an oppressor of his own people. It's like a double down. Like you are you are one of us, and you are you are adding taxes on top of our. We're struggling anyway, and you're making it harder for us just for your own gain. That's how he would have been looked at. And so it kind of gives you a vision why he probably only other tax collectors probably want to have anything to do with him. Does that make sense? And so when he has this encounter with Jesus, um, something has had to have shifted and changed with him, right? So he goes from rejecting this culture that he was raised in um, to having an encounter with the Christ that radically changes him where he gives up his vocation and he decides to be a follower and, and a, a, a teacher of, of Christ, even as I said goes as far as to change his name um and so knowing that about his background that is the lens that you probably i want you to understand when you read the rest of matthew you're going to see lots of of uh stories about the marginalized the outcast being redeemed and brought into the fold quote unquote right you hear that they're brought into the fold his perspective and his agenda would have been, I want you to realize that this gospel literally is for everyone. It doesn't matter if you were born into a Jewish pedigree. It doesn't matter if you were a Gentile. This is for everyone. Does that make sense? And so the first book or the first word out of Matthew's mouth and when he writes his when he writes his book in Matthew 1, it says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. So I'll let you know in the very first sentence of the book what his agenda is. My agenda is to prove to you, this Jewish reader, why Jesus is the Messiah. Because remember, Sam, um, they had been he had been or he had been prophesied about, but they were waiting, and there was a question mark over whether or not this particular man was the Messiah. And frankly, there still is today, right? Um, So then he starts the genealogy, and the genealogy would have been to show the pedigree to show that per his bloodline, not only was he the Messiah, but he was qualified to be king of Israel. And what's interesting to me is that about three um, men down in this pedigree, he, he names Tamar, a woman. Well, that gets my attention as a Western reader because I understand in a patriarchal society, he's a Jewish man. He's writing to other Jewish men. It would have been almost offensive for him to write a woman in a bloodline and genealogy. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. And then you come a little bit further down. He talks about Boaz, 
And then he comes a little further and talks about Ruth. And, and he talks about um, Bathsheba. And he, he lists about five women in this very long list of, of men in their genealogy to say that this was the mother of, this was the mother of, is how he wrote it. And I thought, I wonder why in the world he would have done that. Because he would have probably lost a lot of men in the room just by naming a lady. And if you were going to, Sam, uh, prove the bloodline of a royal, why in the world would you list some of these women? Because when you look at the pedigree of these women, you have Tamar, um, who was a manipulator. She manipulated her father-in-law. Though her intentions were good, her intentions were sure, she manipulated her father-in-law to get an heir. You have, she pretended to be a prostitute, if you remember that story, Sam, to be able to do this. Um, You have Boaz, who didn't even pretend to be a prostitute, Marshall. She was a card-carrying member. She owned a brothel. Um, You have Bathsheba, um, who, if you can remember, um, was um, the the, um, was the wife of David, but that her husband David basically executed, so he could he could have her. Um, You have Ruth, who, when you look at at Ruth, was probably the only woman in the list that had a credible story. But what you probably overlook is Ruth was a Moabite. Which meant that her bloodline was from the from the Moab. Which also, if you under, look at history, um, God cursed that bloodline for a hundred years from serving in temple because her her pedigree came out of incest. It was a daughter who slept with a, a, her father to have a child. So you look at all of these women, even down to Mary, who was the mother of Jesus. But when you look at Mary through the lens of that society, she was an unwed mother. She probably, for all intents and purposes, was probably slut shamed during that time. And she's, you know, she's got this relationship with this man who, you know, I mean, let's just be honest, Sam. Let's just be honest. If 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 your if your fiance turned up pregnant and came to you and said it <laughs> it was an immaculate conception, I don't know. I don't I don't know that you're gonna buy that story. And I don't, you know, so just the near fact of what she had to walk through to and even beyond having Jesus to prove that he was actually an immaculate consent you know he was the son of God I mean that's a hard sell wouldn't you say um, I sure would absolutely it just it seems unfathomable right so I think about if you were going to prove that Jesus was the Messiah and he was the actual son of God why would you include any of these women in this story that would be something I would bury Sam if that were in my family history, I would bury that thing. But he's highlighting it. And I think it's I think it, it kind of tilts back to he wanted to show that it didn't matter where you came from, that even though this was in his bloodline, this actually is what qualified him because he came for everyone, not just the elite, not just the religious institute. He came for everyone to bring them into the fold. Does that make sense? So when you read Matthew, you know that that's, that's his agenda, that he is trying to get across to show Jesus in that way, and that is why. That's his background and kind of color in the, in the picture of him. We're going to put a pin in it right here. We're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about Matthew and how we can apply that to our everyday life. We'll be right back. We hope you are enjoying today's show. We believe that God has given us a voice to impact communities and regions all over the world. If you would like to make sure that voice is heard, please partner with us today by visiting www.expressionradio.org and click donate. 
You can also text GIVE by texting the dollar amount followed by the word RADIO to the number 84321. First-time text givers, please choose Expression Church of Huntington when prompted. All gifts are tax-deductible. Join us as we change the world. So welcome back, everybody. Um, when we cut to commercial break, we were talking a little bit about Matthew and um, his agenda being when he wrote his wrote his um, epistle to show Jesus as um, this redeemer and being accessible to everyone, no matter that your bloodline. Um, I talked a little bit, Marshall, about being from Logan County and some of the um, lessons that kind of get ingrained in you from from being from you know, uh, the, the coal fields and, and things like that. Um, and this morning in preparation for our, um, for our talk, I read your biography that you did for the Huntington Quarterly, I think in the 90s, I think it was. And one of the things that jumped out at me that I had never, I'd never heard you talk about or had ever even really been told the story of was um, when you went to get a, a loan at a, at a bank um, that you you kept finding these doors shut to you um, because um, you, as you viewed it, your your last name. They were more interested in what who your, who, who your dad's who your dad was, your who your last name, what your last name was. Um, can you tell me? That's one thing I've observed about you is you had this beautiful way of looking at a no. And it doesn't become a crushing thing. It doesn't become a defeat for you. You have a beautiful way of pushing past a no and finding a place of yes. Um, or taking something that looks like a defeat and finding opportunity in it. Can you tell me a little bit about about that? I mean, just what it meant to be a kid from from Logan County and trying to kind of kind of be the guy from the other side of the, of the tracks, making a, making just making something for yourself and your family. Well, that gee, that was that was a tough time. Uh, you know, the the, the story of the bank uh, <clears throat> was just a typical uh, a typical experience that that I was having. Uh, you know, a bank, a, a printing company, which is what I owned at the time, is equipment, it's people. And it's capital, and of course, the banks have access to and control all the capital. So you've you've got to you've got to have a relationship with the bank, and because that's where the capital comes from. So I, I had all kind of experiences with that. Uh, most of them were uh, very unpleasant. Uh, I, I remember a, another situation where I said, well, okay, I got to have this much money to buy this piece of equipment to keep these people busy. So I'm going to start at the east end of Huntington and just go to every bank and uh, let, them, let them all turn me down. <laughs> so I started at the 20th Street Bank because I heard they were the most liberal at the time. Got a no, came to Huntington Trust. Got a no, came to First Huntington. Got a no, went to security. Got a no. I said, well, there's two banks down in Cerrito and Canova, so I'll go there. 
I was going from east to west, and I stopped at the Cerrito Bank, and Floyd Stark said, okay, we'll do that. And uh, so that was my bank. <laughs> that was mm-hmm. that. Uh, it, it, was, it was a very tough time. Uh, of course, the first loan you get, you uh, service the debt in a timely manner, and, you know, three months go by, and you want something else, and you go back for financing for another piece of equipment, and okay, and uh, another three months go by, and you go back again, and he said, gee, I don't know, this is getting a, but okay, we'll, we'll do this, but you need to get a little, get your ship a little closer to shore, and uh, so three months went by, and I go back for another deal, and he says, uh, okay, I'm going to do this one, but you've got to get this ship closer to shore. <laughs> So I've, I went through a lot of that, getting the ship closer to shore. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, uh, that's the story. So let me ask you this, <clears throat> because I, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I get to see um, the fruit of your labor, right? Um, so when you were trying to get those loans and you were trying to get that seed money and you're trying to, 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 to create something um, and you didn't have the right last name for it what advice would you give your legacy because now they do have the right name for it so my kids and your grandkids and your great grandkids probably never have a hard time getting a loan in Huntington West Virginia they probably go to any bank Um, what advice would you give your legacy now to try to navigate through because I think there's probably a different kind of pressure and a different kind of resistance that they're going to find. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Because of their last name, what advice would you give your legacy on how to navigate through it? Oh, I'd, I'd tell them to prepay the debt. You know, what, whenever they make a 36-month loan on a, for whatever or a 60-month, or you know, to pay it off early, to pay principal, twice as much principal every mm-hmm. month, uh, because for two reasons. One, it does enhance your credit standing. But two, it lets you get ready for the next deal. If you have no debt, you're ready for the deal. Mm-hmm. Or if you have half as much. Uh, that's that's the advice I'd give. What would you give, what would you say, you say that getting ready for the next deal. That's one thing that I've witnessed about your life is it's constant movement. There's no stagnation. Um, you'll have two or three things going on at one time. Um, what would you say? What value or level of importance would you put on that? If you could, if you could leave that bit of information to anyone who's listening about, don't just sit in the pocket of this success. Always be moving forward. What is the value of always movement? Of always moving and having the next thing going. Well, I, th- I think the value of that is it uh, keeps you from going stir crazy or, or rusty or, or whatever. Uh, you know, I've been involved in a lot of different industries. You know, the banking industry, the dairy business, the railroad business, uh, the machine shop business, the fabric bearing business. 
I've been involved in a, a whole bunch of them and 10 or 12 more. And and I think that uh, I think that sort of keeps your your mind in focus because you're always learning something different about these businesses. Mm. And then you, you you get them all together and you think, gee, this overlaps. This is like the printing business. This is like the uh, the machine shop business, uh, and and you can utilize the shortcuts in this industry to help in this industry, and it it really makes a lot of sense. You bring up that you've that you've had <clears throat> experience in a lot of different areas, and you brought up financial institutions and, and different things. One thing that I noticed from where I grew up and where you grew up in Logan County um, is that. You used to see this direct line and identification between businesses and, and Christianity. Like you see the fish outside, or they would they would say things that would lead you to believe they were a Christian business. And I think they did that one because we're in the Bible Belt, and I think that there's a certain there's something that's communicated with that that there is a level of expectation that one would assume you would get by dealing with a Christian institution, right? Um, do you think that? those two things coexist like what level of what how do you think that the two um one has anything to do with the other in your experience because you've dealt with the bible belt down through louisiana you've also dealt in california that i don't think it probably exists out there <laughs> no. what does that look like well i, I would uh, <laughs> i would tell you one example of that uh, you know geez one of the biggest uh, Printing jobs in Huntington used to be the the tournament, uh, the St. Joe Invitational oh, yeah. Tournament, and uh, gee, any anybody that could print that, you know, could really. I mean, Lord, it was 118 pages, and and uh, it was a great job. So anyway, I mean, I tried to get it, tried to get it, tried to get it. I could tell the guy that put it out really wanted to do business with me, but he never did. So after two or three years of hustling, I kind of gave up on it. Frank Lombardo was his name. And he owned a beer distributor uh, deal, and I couldn't get his business either. So anyway, I'd, I'd pretty well given up on it. And one day he walks in the door and asked for me. And he said, here's a Catholic tournament. We pay this much for it. It should be about the same uh, job yours. Here's a copy. I said, well, gee, great. Thank you. And he walked out. So I turned the job in, got proofs on it, took them back to him. I said, Mr. Lombardo, let me ask you a question. I said, uh, gee, I am worked on this job for three or four years with you, and I thought you wanted to do business with me, but you never did. I appreciate the fact you walked in and handed me the job, but, but why now? He said, well, it's real simple. So Charlie Finsterwald sold his business at Paragon Printing Company, and so I went, I went with you. 
He said, you know, if if I would have taken that business away from Charlie, the priest the priest would have given me all kinds of guff, <laughs> and I can't stand this. And I thought, Lord, there is there is a correlation between religion and business, and that sort of shocked me into it, mm-hmm. and uh, that that was. Uh, a wonderful experience, mm-hmm. uh, as it turned out, because we did the St. Joe tournament until they, well, they reduced it in size, and then they reduced it again, and then they, I think they finally about done away with. Mm-hmm. That was it. So, would you would you say, or would you can you look back on um, on any pieces of advice or guidance? Let's start with this. Have, have there been any really influential people in your life that you look back on and thought, you know, but for that person, I probably wouldn't be here today? Is there anyone like that that you can think of in your life? Well, I, gee, look, looking back, probably the, the most influential person on in my life was my father. Uh, he gave me uh, good advice. Uh, on the situations, I wasn't smart enough to listen to it lots of times. But then would think back and think, gee, you know, here's what he said if I'd have done that. Uh, certainly Floyd Stark at Sri Bank was an, was an influence. Uh, Mr. Levinson Inco was an influence. Lee Shepard at, at uh, Inside Electric was an influence. Uh, I've, I've had a uh, lot of people that, that actually have influenced me. But but all in all, I would say my, my, my dad probably more than anybody. What do you think the best piece of advice is that your dad gave you um, looking back that you kind of latch on to today? <laughs> My dad, uh, one piece of advice, he said, uh, the number one thing in your priorities has to be your family. And as I have lived my life and look back, I, uh, you know, come back to that. Mm. It, it is your family. What would be the one piece of advice if you could make sure that you instill in your grandchildren, your great grandchildren? What would that be? The one piece of advice I give, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd say it'd probably be the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know these. Uh, there is a there is a wall between grandfathers and grandchildren. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure why there is, but there is. Uh, if you could break down that wall, would would be a wonderful thing. But I think it'd probably be up to the grandfather to do that. Uh, young kids uh, seem to have a a sense of. You know, what I'm doing right now is not important. Uh, but maybe what you're doing is important, so I'll defer. And so you have that. So uh, 
and that that's almost universal with all of them. When you say that they think that what I'm doing is not important, talking about what they're, they they personally are doing is not important, so they yeah. defer on what you, Papa, are doing. Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm, I'm saying they think that what they're doing is not important. Yeah. And uh, it, it is the most important thing in the world. But uh, they def- defer to the grandfather thinking what he's doing is more important, mm. and it's not. Uh because what he's doing, he's probably done it a thousand times. And, hmm. and uh, Do you think that's just a lack of confidence or a lack of um, experience or both? Well, I think it's both. It's right. a lack of confidence and lack of experience, too, but more more probably a lack of confidence than anything. Hmm. I think we've had, we've, I've had to have this conversation very similar conversation with one of our elder boys um just kind of looking at actually injustice to my justice if you've met him he's he's i think he's a clone of you he walks like you he thinks like you he acts like you and i got tickled at him um the day he turned 14 he came to me said mom he said can you help me find some real estate around huntington he's like i'd like to have some farm land but i need to have a, a farm close enough where i can get into town to work and i'm like oh okay i was like that's an interesting conversation for a 14 year old what what are you thinking he goes well one of these days he said i'm gonna be running this thing and he said uh i need to be able to get to work every day but i want to live on the farm <laughs> or i want to live close enough to get to work but i will live on a farm and i laughed at him and i thought well what confidence one that he really thinks that you know he could do anything you know, number one. Um, but then I thought, you know, I, you, you don't want them to ever get the impression that it's, it's expected, right? That we, we want them to find their own path. I know you want them all to find their own path, whatever that path looks like. Um, you would, you know, you'll help them in any way that they can and give them any leg up that you can. And if that's part of what you've created, the beautiful. But if not, that's okay, too. Um, but that's something that we are wrestling with one of our older sons with is this ex is he feels this pressure and this expectation that you've never placed on him. And I know his father never has, but he's placed on himself. Like, he, you know, it's like that patriarchal system. I've got to I've got to put the mantle on myself and keep this thing moving. Um, do you think that's part of it that they just don't understand that they maybe they're not confident enough to find their own footing? Maybe that's part of it. Well, young people. uh by and large, lack confidence. Mm. And, you know, the the thing that gives you confidence is to do something successfully two or three times. And they haven't had very many experiences or very many exposures. So they don't, that's why they don't have the confidence. It's, it's, they just, they haven't played yet. Mm. And, uh, but I, I think a lack of confidence is a, uh, uh, a universal thing with with young people. Do you think? And Doug and I have had this conversation that <clears throat> he gets asked a lot, like, "What is your what is the key to your dad's success?" And he, you know, he he will, you know, he'll he'll give the answers that he gives. And one day, he finally, he sat down with me. We had a coffee together. He's, "What do you think the key to dad's success is?" Someone asked you, and I'm like, "Honestly, courage." And he was like, "What do you mean?" And I'm like, "Well, he has he has vision." But he has the courage to act on what he sees. And most people will never get past the fear of failure to actually try at something. He, he doesn't have that. He's willing to try, and he's willing to fail big to succeed big. Does that make sense? Um, and we got into this conversation about, our, about 
even our demographic and younger, we don't like to be uncomfortable. <laughs> we, we Everything is very accessible to us. It becomes easy to us. We can pick up our phone and look up anything we wanted to do. And we live in a, a microwave world where everything is fast. You don't have to really wait for anything to incubate. Um, and I wonder if some of it that we're having to combat with our kids is being okay to be uncomfortable and having the courage to push past that fear of failure to try at something so you can have those wins to build that stamina to move forward. What do you think about that? Well, you know, I, th- I think if you look at uh, having the courage to play the game, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mean, gee, I have failed at things. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But if, if I did, you know, I just dusted off and went on to another game uh, after a while. But, uh, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, children do not have the resiliency of their parents normally. Uh, so why is that? You know, do you, you have to ask someone head doctor I mean because I don't have a clue why but I have noticed it with with my children with your children with Jack's children with everybody's children co-workers children that uh, there seems to be a tremendous lack of confidence hmm. listen that we really have to really have to work on to be honest with you now justice has a lot of confidence he does uh, he does there's such thing as being overconfident. <laughs> there is. And we, we've talked about that a lot. Sometimes we need to harness that. It's We don't want to timber it out of him. We need to harness it in the right directions because there's a fine line between confidence and cocky. <laughs> and sometimes you can open doors with confidence that you will shut with being cocky. So we need to kind of learn to read a room <laughs> and how much of that's a release. Right, but he'll he'll get there. He's a good kid. He, oh, he'll, he he'll get there. He is. He's sharp as a tack. He will get there. It will get that. Well, I appreciate your time and coming in and pouring wisdom into us. Um, it's a it's a funny thing. We went to a, a funeral yesterday, Sam, and you hear all these beautiful things being said about about people. And um, I just wanted to make sure that you understand that we honor the hard work that you put in for our family, and uh, we're very much appreciative of it. Did you go to Mr. Shelf's? I did. Yeah, made it in there. Yeah. Anyway. Well, anyway. It's, Loyal Table listeners, we appreciate you so much, and we will see you next week. We hope you are enjoying today's show. We believe that God has given us a voice to impact communities and regions all over the world. If you would like to make sure that voice is heard, please partner with us today by visiting www.expressionradio.org and click Donate. You can also text give by texting the dollar amount followed by the word radio to the number 84321. First-time text givers, please choose Expression Church of Huntington when prompted. All gifts are tax-deductible. Join us as we change the world.